Well, again, good morning. And, you know, Easter is one of those Sundays where all different sorts of people are here. Some of you are here because you were dragged here by your mother, your father, your grandma, your grandpa, your friend. Um, Some of you are here because you're in town. Some of you are here because Village Church is your home. But really, whatever brought you here, um, our desire is to encourage you to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together. Um, We just happen to be here every single Sunday celebrating the resurrection of Jesus at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock right here. Um, But Easter is a special day. Every day is Resurrection Sunday. But Easter is a special day where we specifically open up God's word and we just dig deep into what the resurrection means for each one of us. So what I want to do this morning is I want to uh, share with you life's three biggest questions, and then we're going to process these through the lens of the resurrection. So here's the first question. Is there a God? If so, how do we know? Now, many people do not like this question. They seek to avoid it because they're afraid deep down in their heart of what they're going to find if they really dig. Because if there's not, and this, this is all there is, life is meaningless. If this is all there is, what that means is that when we die, when we close our eyes for the last time, there is nothing. There is, there is no long slumber where you dream. There is no, there's nothing. And our soul needs to know, needs to know that there is a God and that there's purpose in this life. Uh, the second question I want to process through the resurrection is this. If there is a God, which religion is true? I mean, so many people, you feel paralyzed because you don't know where to start. There's all of these religions and holy books and worldviews and philosophies. How do I even break through all of this? But our souls desperately need to know who the true God is. We need to know that when we pray and talk to him, that he hears us. We need to know what is required in order to have relationship with that God. Like We need to know these things. And our souls, by the way, are wired to need this kind of information. Third question I want to process this morning is what happens when I die? If there's not a God, the answer is easy. But if there is a God, how do I know that I have the right one? And how do I make sure that when I die, I know that I am not in hell. And, and, and these questions are just wired into our soul. They've been asked for millennia. It doesn't matter where you come from or where you were born. God has put these questions deep into our soul, and it is wise for us to begin to seek answers. And Christians, we love resurrection. We love Easter because the resurrection brings clarity to each of these questions. So let's start with the first one. Is there a God? Now, there are two big ways to discern if there's a God. The first way, it's very simple, Common sense. The logical mind that has nothing to prove that can just simply look at evidence set before them should be able to come to the following conclusion. There is something powerful, conscious, and creative that designed all of this. In fact, it's so obvious that the vast majority of humanity, no matter where they were born in the world over millennia, have come to this conclusion. They look at the world and what is normal and reasonable, and they say, clearly there has to be something conscious, intelligent that designed this. Let me just give you a few things that people, not really having to be taught, intuitively know Here's one. Consciousness never comes from unconsciousness. Like never are you going to observe anywhere where something that was just matter, a rock or something or some form of cells, all of a sudden says, oh, there I am. 
Oh, no, it doesn't happen. In fact, what we see is that life only ever comes from life. And so we look at this beautiful world, and we see that there's life everywhere, and it just screams that there is something alive and powerful that created this. Here's, here's another one. Order never, ever comes from disorder. Ever. It's impossible. It's against the laws of the universe. In fact, so, so we're supposed to believe that somehow there is a massive explosion bigger than anything that ever existed, and out of the chaos of that explosion, all the order, beauty, and majesty of this world came about. It's actually not even logical and violates the laws of our universe. But people have observed this, that all of this can't just come from nothing. Something, something had to create this that is taking the chaos of this world and bringing order out of it. Or here's another one. Something never comes from nothing. Something always comes from something conscious. Always. We see this everywhere all around us. And so for most of humanity throughout all of history, they're not wrestling with the question, is there a God? Now there's a second, second way to answer the question, and that is through miracles. A miracle is an intervention by something divine into the laws of this universe, reversing them. A miracle is something that should be utterly and totally impossible without divine intervention. And Christians love Easter because we celebrate the miracle of the resurrection. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this isn't just some hocus pocus. This is, there is unbelievable amount of evidence pointing in the direction that the resurrection of Jesus is historically verifiable. In fact, there are few events in antiquity or history that are as well documented and validated historically as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I do believe that if you are at all interested, now hear me when I say this, actual truth, not just having your ears tickled or validating your worldview or being right, but if you are actually interested to know what is real, you will take into consideration the resurrection of Jesus and what it implies. Now, what I have found is I've had the privilege, this is, I think I've counted my 20th Easter sermon or teaching that I've had. So I've had the opportunity for kind of years to study. Some of you have not. In fact, some of you don't even know where to start. And so if there's even like something in your heart or mind that says, I probably need to investigate this because if this thing is true, it kind of changes everything. We would love to help you take a next step. But here's, here's what you're going to find. Um, most people who study the evidence of resurrection, despite their conclusions, they're usually left with one evidence or one idea, and it just rattles in their brain, and they can't shake it. And, and if you do come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it's, it's the one thing that most people who study it come back to and say, you know what, because of this thing, I just can't deny it. There's a, um, a, a Christian who passed away a few years ago. His name's Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a political leader. And uh, how many of you were alive when the Watergate scandal happened? 1972, I believe. I wasn't. Um, but uh, Chuck Colson uh, committed a great felony. Multiple powerful men went to jail for a while because they were playing around with elections in a way that is illegal. Don't do that, FYI. And so Chuck Colson went to prison, um, and he was asked the question after he got out of prison, why do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now, as I said, there's always that one thing. You look at all the evidence. There's one that just rattles in your brain. You can't shake it. And here was Chuck Colson's response he says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for over 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, 
tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Now listen to this. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? His response, absolutely impossible. So let me share with you the evidence in my brain that just rattles, and this is just two pieces of literally hundreds of evidence that all just demand and point in the same direction to the miracle of the resurrection. But if, if, if you've been at Village Church, you've probably heard me reference this piece of evidence almost every Easter because it, for me, is the rattling evidence. There are three people who so believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ Two of them gave their lives for it, died, were murdered because of this conviction. One of them absolutely would have if they were given the opportunity. And I want to share with you these three people. Uh, The first one is a guy named James. Now, James, pop quiz, wrote the book of James. Good job. James, I don't know if you know who he is. James is the little brother of Jesus. I am the youngest of four brothers. And there is no way... In God's green earth, I will acknowledge them as master, God, Lord, or Savior, unless they have like their hand around my neck, say uncle, like, like, is it like nothing? Like, I know these guys. I love them dearly, but they are, anybody, amen? Anybody got siblings in this room, right? What would it take for you to go back over your childhood and reprocess that and go, I think it could be God, like the creator of the universe. That feels right. Here's, here's what James 1.1 says. The book starts off. And here's how he opens this up. He says, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The little brother calls himself a servant, calls him Lord, which is their phrase for master or God, and then gives him the title Christ. I'm going to blow your mind right now. It's not his last name. It's actually a, a Hebrew word translated into Greek. It's a messianic title used for the person who is sent by God, fully God in the flesh, who would take on their, li- on their body the full weight and punishment of sins and be the savior of the world. James looks at his older brother, calls himself his servant, calls Jesus his Lord, and gives him the name Christ. Chapter two, verse one, James says this, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he calls him this, the Lord of glory. By the way, that is a title reserved only and ever for Yahweh. And somehow James feels confident that he looks at his older brother and says, my big brother is the Lord of glory, Yahweh in the flesh. Here's the second person, Jude. Pop quiz, Jude wrote wrote what book? Jude, good job. You know who Jude is? He's the little brother of Jesus. Listen how Jude starts off his letter, just like James. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ. He also acknowledges he's the Messiah, the long-awaited one, Yahweh in the flesh. And he says, and the brother of James, to those who are called, and then he says, who are kept for Jesus Christ. Here's his basic assumption. Jude believes that he was saved for Jesus, that he exists for Jesus. But that is a weird thing for a little brother to say, but he doesn't just stop there. In, in Jude chapter 1, verse 4, he calls him this. He says, Jesus, who is our only master and Lord. And then in, in verse 5, he actually says something that is unthinkable. He says this, 
I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, all right, we've been teaching through Exodus Village Church, who only ever gets credit for saving the Israelites out of the hand of Egypt? Yahweh, period. And Jude has the guts to put on paper, parchment, that Jesus was actually the one who saved Israel from Egypt. We go to the third person, which is Mary, the mother of Jesus. This woman changed his diaper and wiped his butt. Moms, you know everything about your kids. What would it take for someone to convince you that your child literally is the Lord of glory, who was there when the waters parted and saved all of the Israelites from the evil hand of Pharaoh in Egypt? What would it take for you to believe that? Let me say it this way. Something historic, epic, and miraculous happened that helped James and John make sense of their childhood. Something happened to the point where when they realized who Jesus was, they went, yep, that makes sense. Again, anybody who has a sibling, for me, this is that rattling evidence. How is it these two men gave their entire life to the point of shedding of blood for their conviction that their big brother was God in the flesh, resurrected from the dead, the Lord of glory, the king of the universe? Now, if the resurrection is true, we know there is a God because only God could reverse the laws of the universe. Let's go to the second question. What religion is true? If Jesus was raised from the dead, then that is divine validation of his teaching. And, and let me just share with you, if Jesus were standing up here, here, here's what he would tell you about religion. There are so many options and choices. It's confusing. It's exhausting. Get it. He would tell you this. Any religion, any faith system, any philosophy that does not put him as God in the flesh at the center of it, no matter how close it gets, is wrong. Then he would also stand up here and he would tell you that any religion, faith system, or worldview that does not have the Bible as its authority, no matter how close it gets, is wrong. You just read the teachings of Jesus. He understood exactly who he was, and you understood that his authority was rooted in the word of God. Now, one of the biggest challenges in getting people to consider the evidence at all is getting people to overcome some of their assumptions about the Bible. So here's what I have found. Um, being an extrovert and a pastor, it provides multiple opportunities to have conversations with strangers. In fact, there's probably very few people that I've met that aren't strangers to me. So I have a lot of interesting conversations, and, and I get to meet a lot of people who are doubters, skeptics, atheists, agnostics, etc. And as I talk with them, it's very interesting because I, they assume in the conversation they know about the Bible. And so gently, we have conversations that often go something like this. Oh, have you ever read the Bible? And they will always, with a clear conscience, and they're not trying to be dishonest, they will almost always say, yes. And, and then we start kind of going a little bit deeper, and here's what we learn. They actually have maybe only read a couple verses or a chapter, or when they were a kid, they grew up, and so sitting in a service and falling asleep while a boring preacher preaches counts as like somehow listening. 
Um, or they've been listening to people on YouTube who don't like the Bible, so they will quote the Bible, and so they feel like genuinely, with all sincerity, that they have read the Bible. And then as we start digging a little bit, what I learn is that the vast majority of people have actually never picked it up with the intention of studying it. It's just dismissed. And so there are a couple of things that we just see regularly that I want to share with you that I, I would love for people just to maybe agree that they don't know it as well as they think they do and give it a chance. Let me share with you just two categories that I think really get in the way of understanding the Bible. Number one is there are all these false mantras. A false mantra is this saying that we repeat as a culture. Like I heard somebody say it on TV, and whenever you say it, it makes you feel like you have like a big warm hug, and it makes you feel all wonderful inside. And then you hear another person say it, and then eventually you hear enough people say it that if everybody says the same thing, it can't be wrong, right? And if it feels good, if it feels right, it can't be wrong, can it? Let me share with you two of these. Here's the first one. Good people go to heaven. Doesn't that just feel like chicken soup for your soul? So, so inclusive. Here's the problem. The Bible never teaches it. That's a big deal, by the way. If you believe the Bible says something is fundamental about that, and you get that wrong, I mean, that is 101. In fact, it doesn't just not say it. The implications of that are atrocious. That God is the kind of father who will only love you if you're good enough and you perform. And then you have to live under the weight that my good works outweigh my bad works. Oh no, what an oppressive, terrible thing to say. But it feels good. And it doesn't divide people because most people think they're good, or at least better than the person next to them. Here's another one. All religions are basically the same. It's like a big hug. The problem is, they're not. And the moment you tell me this, here's what I know about you. You've never studied a religion in your life. Because if you had, you would never say that. Because people who do study them know that they don't agree and that religions have strong opinions and that they are not on the same page and all religions are not equal. But we have a whole generation believing they know the Bible and they're walking around with mantras that aren't even rooted in Scripture. This goes a little bit deeper. Here's the second way to look at this. There are a whole bunch of ideas and one-liners that people are convinced are Bible verses, and they're not. Let me share a couple with you. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Amen? Amen? <laughs> the vast majority of people, not John, by the way, he's our worship leader, he knows it's not in the Bible, but the vast majority of Americans believe that's in the Bible, and it's not. Here, here's another one. God helps those who help themselves not there. Doesn't it feel good though? Like when someone's lazy, you're like, God helps those who help themselves. I'm superior, right? Here's one. God works in mysterious ways. Now that's more Bono from you too than it is the word of God, but it's not in the Bible. Here's another one. God won't give you more than you can handle. Now the Bible teaches that there's no temptation that you can't get out of, but of course God gives you more than you can handle. If he didn't give you more than you can handle, you wouldn't need God. God loves to give you more than you can handle so you can run to him and trust in him and rely on him and watch him come through. But we deal with an entire generation of people who write Jesus off because they've written the Bible off because they know what's in the Bible. And I'm just telling you, the more I talk to people, it is rare 
rare that I meet somebody who has rejected Jesus because they've read and studied the Bible, particularly they've thought through the evidence around the resurrection of Jesus. Here's my challenge for you. If, if, if you're wondering and you don't know what to do with this message, here's a next step for you if you've never trusted in Christ and you don't know what to believe. Objectively, patiently, without agenda other than to know the truth, study the historical evidence for the resurrection. And then at that point, at least if you are open and you spend the time and you do the, the, the good hard work on that one, at least reject Jesus based on accurate information, not responding to YouTube videos that other people have made that you've watched. Here's the third and final question. What happens when I die? If the resur resurrection is true, this gets answered so simply, so easily. God's word is so simple on this. And I'm very grateful because our souls need to know when I die, what happens. Here's what most people think. When I die, I will go to heaven forever. Now, you might be thinking, oh no, is he gonna become a heretic in this moment? No, I'm not. <laughs> but is that actually what happens? Let's think about this. On Easter, we celebrate what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, right, is resurrected with a new, physical, tangible body. And when we see the resurrection, we see that he's conquered sin and death and hell. We also get a glimpse into our future, which is physical, bodily resurrection. And yet, is it true to say that when I die and my body and my, my, my soul are separated, that I'm going to stay a soul and only a soul forever in heaven? It's actually not true. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, let me just share with you two simple things about what happens when you die. Here's the first one. Your conscious soul goes either to the presence of God or away from the presence of God. Uh, Jesus said to the thief next to him, today, this day, you're going to be with me in paradise. When that thief died on that cross next to Jesus and he woke up, who did he see? He saw Jesus. And he was very well aware of where he was, even though his body was dead, still probably hanging on a cross. His soul was in the presence of God. Now, if you die and you have rejected Jesus and you've never trusted him, then your soul will go away from the presence of God. Now, the second thing that happens, and this is really important, these are the implications of Easter, is that when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, he will renew and recreate the heavens and the earth. By the heavens, he means the skies, the stars, all of this world. He will eradicate sin from every nook and cranny, and then all will be raised from the dead. Christian, non-Christian, all of humanity, 100% of people will be raised from the dead. I want to take you back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever even born. Daniel chapter 12 talks at the first about how before the end of the world, it's going to get pretty bad. And, and here's what Daniel 12, 1 says. At that time shall arise Michael, he's one of the chief archangels, the great prince who has charge of your people, the Israelites, God's people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as, as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, that means they're dead, they shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And he says this, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above 
and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So Jesus in John 5 picks up this theme in this teaching. Listen to what he says. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. No distinction, Christian, non-Christian, follower of Christ, hater of Jesus, atheist, theist, doesn't matter. All will come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, American Christians get caught up on this word good and what we don't do when we read the Bible is pluck out verses, take them out of context. Jesus is actually going to define the word good in the next chapter. And the people are trying to figure out what these good works are. If somebody says, do this good thing, right, and you will have the resurrection of life, your natural next question is going to be, what's the good thing? What are the good works? What are the good things I need to do? And Jesus answers them, and he says this, this is the good work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. For Jesus, the way to everlasting life is not through the accrual of good works so that your good works outweigh your bad works. But for Jesus, the avenue to the resurrection of life is belief and trust in Jesus, the Son of God. That is the avenue. And for most American Christians, that blows their mind because we live with this mantra, good people go to heaven. And yet you meet Jesus and he dismantles this completely. And he basically says this, no, people who believe in me and are forgiven of their sins, those are the ones who go to heaven and then after that have the resurrection of life. So what happens when you die? When you die, your body and your soul are separated. And if you've trusted in Christ, you go to his presence until his second coming. And if you have not trusted in Christ, you're away from his presence, you will immediately know what's happening. And then at the final, when there's the judgment of all the world and the recreation of the heavens and the earth, you will either be resurrected to life and reign over this world with Jesus, or you'll be resurrected to judgment. And it seems that this is the place of hell, which will likely be someplace on the new earth. That's what happens when we die. And if Jesus has been raised, this question is answered so simply. Just as he was raised and given an imperishable body, so will we. Now, at the end of our sermons, we usually end with what we call so what's. These are some final just takeaways for you to remember. And here's the first so what. The resurrection answers our greatest questions, our soul's greatest questions with clarity. I've said this a couple times and I want to say it again. You may be here and you just may not buy into any of this. But I think it is incumbent upon you to investigate. It is incumbent upon you that if there is a question with this much to lose, that we have to investigate. We have to seriously, thoughtfully, objectively, clear-headedly think through the data and the evidence around the resurrection. One of the biggest challenges that people have to trusting in Christ and looking into this is very simply, as you get older, if you admit that Jesus is God, there is an admission also behind this that you're making. And the admission is this, everything I believed up until that point was wrong. There's a reason why as men and women, especially men, get older, it's harder and harder for them to trust in Christ because rumor has it, as we get older, we like to be right more and more. Anyone? Anyone? Who likes to be more wrong as you get older? 
And if you happen to be in your 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s and, and you come to this realization that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he is God, the religion that is true is the one that he talks about rooted in himself and the word, we call it Christianity, and that heaven and hell are at stake, it is a really hard decision. It is a huge swallowing of your pride to in that moment admit that everything I believed up until that point was wrong. But I wanna just share with you, if you're that person, who cares if you're wrong? If you don't get this thing right, it doesn't matter. Future you, 10,000 years down the road, is begging you to make this decision today and to swallow your pride. Future you sees all of this very clearly, by the way. And future you isn't, isn't concerned about your past pride. Future you is concerned about today, you coming to Christ and making this thing right. The resurrection answers these things. And so if you're here and, and, and you still need to do some, some research, I encourage you, take that next step and do what you have to do. Here's the second so what. The resurrection resolves our greatest fears. Behind every one of these major questions is a very real fear that everyone in this room has. Is there a God? What's the fear behind us? Is all of this meaningless? Because if there's no God, nothing has meaning. And there's this, there's this question as you get older and older, like what is the meaning? What is the point? Why am I working and toiling and doing all of these things? And if there is no God, it is literally all useless and meaningless. And our souls are desperate to know that that is not the case. The second question, which religion is true? The, the, the fear behind this is, have I wasted my life on the wrong thing? Like what a terrible thought to be at the end of your life and realize you were wrong and that you didn't live for Jesus, which is the only way to not waste your life. And that you have to come to grips with that. We are petrified of getting to the end of our life and realizing we messed it all up. And Jesus comes before you now and says, start now. Make everything from this point on actually count. Here's the third question. What happens when I die? The fear behind this is, will I go to hell? And the resurrection of Jesus tells us that there is a God, his name is Jesus, and the salvation and resurrection to eternal life is for anybody who would place their faith in him. So as Christians, we love Easter because it takes our greatest fears, puts them into perspective, and tells us we have a God who loves us, knows us, hears us. He has shown us which religion is right and true. Anyone that is centered on the person of Jesus, that teaches his word. We know these things, and God has given us forgiveness not by being good. He's given us the certainty of eternal life with him, not by accruing good works or being better than the person next to me but by trusting in Jesus Christ. So Christians, we love Easter. Maybe you're here and you're like, wow, these people sing loud. These people are excited. We are excited and you need you to catch us because our soul's greatest worries and concerns have been satisfied in the resurrection of Jesus. And so Christians, we're gonna take a moment. I wanna pray with you and invite the worship team to come up and, and we're gonna sing one last song. And, and this is an opportunity for us to pour out our worship and our praise to our God because he has resolved our greatest worries and concerns and met our greatest needs. So Ville Church, let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. I am so thankful for um, all the men and women and students and children. I've been amazed at how just even good the kids have been and in this service, just thankful that we get to worship together. I am thankful that you love us. You could have left us 
without your word, without answers, just using common sense and philosophy to try to grope and figure out what is real and true, but you have revealed yourself with clarity. You are real. You are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You love us. You want relationship with us. You have removed every single obstacle to that. And God, now we have the opportunity to trust in you. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's just kind of wrestling through this right now and trying to figure out what that next step is, if you are really who you say you are, would you show them the reality of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection for them? And so God, in this moment, would you, by your spirit, well up inside of us, awe, gratitude, thankfulness for what you have done for us on the cross and in the resurrection and by saving each one of us personally who've trusted in Jesus. We love you. We worship you now. Amen, Ville Church. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.